Part of it is you're scared because you think what you've done isn't good enough yet. And you just got to get over that and you got to get through that fear. The other is you don't want to be told your idea is not good. And this is mostly a subconscious fear that holds people back. You know, people often have unrealistic expectations about how expensive it actually is to build a business, let alone a product. One of the big lessons that I learned pretty early on, thankfully, with ThoughtBot is that artificial intelligence in today's world doesn't just magically exist. You need to train it. And so you almost always have to train it with manual stuff that you've done in your business. Tits the season. Sorry, excuse me. Tis the season to be thankful. And so before we get started with this episode, I'll tell you about three new Patreons that I'm thankful for. Let's start with Marco Del Carlo in London, Patrice Ludwig in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and last but not least, Crystal DeBose of Crystal Smooth Enterprises in New York, New York. Thank you to you all for being new Patreons. And again, thank you to all of our new current and past Patreon members. And if you're a current Patreon member, well, be sure to stay tuned in till the end of the show as I'll have a special announcement on how you can access some of our awesome exclusive Patreon episodes. Thanks one more time for helping us in 2019 kick off this Patreon membership, and we really look forward to expanding it and giving you some more tools, interviews, and episodes that hopefully can help you grow your business. So thanks again for your support, and hope you all enjoy this episode. Is IO the new thing? I know it's been, I've been hearing it, but it's more expensive than dot-coms if you're getting a regular one. It is, yeah. Which I don't understand. I thought it'd be cheaper. It belongs to the Indian Ocean Territory, so they get all the money from it. Good, I'm asking all these questions. So you know anything else about that? Why do they get the money versus dot-com? Do you know the difference? I mean, like why they would get all the money versus other places? I'm, I guess I'm a little confused by that. Yeah, so every country in the world has a top-level domain name that they owned and that the original idea was U.S., and that would be the U.S. government handing those out, that kind of thing. So .io is Indian Ocean Territories. And so the same thing with .uk. Every country in the world has it. So .io got popular because they opened it up and made it available to anyone anywhere, and they charge more expensive, but the .io is like a tech thing, and so it's attractive to tech people. So .com, is that just worldwide, so no one gets the money for that? Dot-coms worldwide, it was just part of the original TLDs of the internet. It's run by ICANN. It is a U.S.-centric thing. ICANN is international, but it's a little, actually, I think it used to be more controversial than it is now, but it was sort of a big deal because it was like a private company, but in control of the whole internet, basically. Nice. Well, dropping some technology. Glad I asked this stuff. All right. So yeah, you got any other questions before we get started? I don't think so. Okay, cool. So usually I start off the interview with four quick questions. It's your name, your age, your location. And then if you want to tell us about your company a little bit, we'll go over that for a few minutes, I guess. And then we can kind of reel it back to how you got started with it. Okay. So ready when you are. Yeah. So my name's Chad Pytel. I'm 39 years old. I live in Boston, Mass. I live in Newton, but ThoughtBot's based in Boston where I work. And I am developer and CEO of ThoughtBot. And we are a web and mobile design and development company. So yeah, what does your company do? We work with companies of all sizes, from individual founders to much larger companies that want to do something new. And we go from concept to launch of new 
app and other digital ideas for digital products. We bring those products to market super quickly. So almost everything we do launches to somebody somewhere within 12 weeks of starting from just that sort of napkin sketch of the idea. And how many miles do you run a week? <laughs> I run over 40 miles a week. Yeah. Normally I don't ask that. When I got your answers, I was like, shit, said you run 40 miles a week when I was asking, you know, your favorite Amazon purchase and you're saying Nike free run sneakers. I'm like, goodness, if you can run that many miles a week, that's good for you, man. And it's congratulations. Yeah. It stands out as a purchase because when you run that much, I think most running sneakers are only good for like 300 to 500 miles. So every couple of months I have to get a new pair of shoes. So how'd you get into running? My wife ran and we were training together. We were running together and she was going to run a half marathon. She ran it without me because I wasn't really that much of a runner. The next year I was like, you know, I'm going to do this with you. And I got hurt while we were training and could never do it. She then also got hurt afterwards. <laughs> and so she had to stop running. But I was like, I never did this and I want to do it. So I'm going to train by myself to do it. Then when I finished the half marathon and finished the race, I felt like I could keep on going. And because of that, I knew that I was going to run a marathon. Did they do a movie on you? Wasn't it like called Forrest Gump or something? <laughs> there are people who run a lot longer than I do. So I don't want to put myself on too high of a pedestal. I know one of my neighbor's cousins runs ultra marathon. So he's running 50 and 100 mile races for multiple days. So I'm nowhere near that level. But I just love to run. I think it's very meditative being able to go out and do nothing for an hour or two hours really helps me stay sane, helps me having done this for 16 years and feel like I can keep on going. A big part of that is that time. Someone asked me recently how I create white space. And I was like, that's a really interesting wording. But it's very clearly the way I create white space in my life is through running. What's white space? It's like time where you're actively thinking that you have to be on like meetings and that kind of thing or work. Like what is the time where you're creating space for downtime and restoration? I think a lot of entrepreneurs who are like doing their business, you get so locked in, right? That you have to do something. And it's almost every minute that I'm not doing something, it kind of snowballs. I'm like, uh, you know, I wasn't being efficient enough or whatever. But eventually, sometimes I get in those. I'm like, dude, just forget about it. It's all right. Especially when I compare it to if I think about how efficient probably some employees are in companies. I talked to enough entrepreneurs. They're like, yeah, I was probably about as 30% as efficient as I am now that I don't run my own company because you realize that efficiency matters. But also at the same time, getting out, doing other things, because if you don't, you go crazy. And so I have to put on my calendar, like when I'm going to get the gym or try to make sure on certain nights that I get out of the house or do whatever, or else it just kind of snowballs into a bad thing. I think exercise is a good outlet, particularly for me, I found the running was good. So the big step change in my running was when I looked at the numbers, because at the time I was just using an app to track the runs and realized if I ran just a little bit more, I would break a hundred miles in a month. And that number, it just like clicked for me. And I said, well, what would I need to do in order to be able to do that instead of running every other day to run every day? And so did you make that running app? I didn't make the running app, no. Okay. <laughs> but putting my sneakers by the side of the bed, putting the clothes out the day before and making sort of a challenge for myself. Definitely, I am competitive by nature. I tend not to be competitive externally as much as internally to myself, wanting to always in business and in the apps we build and the products I build to make them the best I can. And that's what ThoughtBot's about too. And everything that we do and everything that I do in my personal life and everything is just trying to find always a better way to do things. 
and to discover that and, okay, well, we did that. Now, what are we going to do even better? Yeah, I think it's important too, what you're saying, even like putting your shoes out the day before or something, because if you see it, it makes you like want to do it versus if I guess it was in your closet. I usually go maybe two or three times a week to the gym, but got dumbbells recently, like these, I guess the kind that you can interchange the different weights. It can go basically from five to 55 or something like that. So it's crazy amount. And I just have it somewhere where I see it all the time. So if I see it versus if it is in a closet every day, I'm like doing something like in between. I'm like, I just need to move my body some, right? Cause I'm sitting down working. I'm like, at least I'll lift like lightweight or whatever. So I think keeping consciousness of having those things out, cause if it's in a closet or something like that, then it's probably going to be a little bit less motivated. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's some business lessons in there somewhere. Just having that out. I mean, so for example, I've taken like competitors because one of my traits was, I forget which type of trait test I did. One of them top two is like a competition. And this first one was Achiever. So I took other podcasts that I wanted to be like before I even started it or actually like beat them. I cut them all out. I printed it out. Yeah, I printed it on paper, believe it or not. And then I just put it on my door and I put like 50 of them on there. Because if I see that, then I'm like, okay, am I outworking these guys? I know you can't always outwork people, but at least gets me motivated at some point in time. If I'm feeling lazy or, you know, don't want to work or whatever, it's like other people are working. What are you doing? Yeah. The way I talk about that is grit, because I think that's an important part of, at least for me, having been at this for so long, the ability to get up and do it again, even though you failed, is critical to longevity and to success. At least it's been for me. Well, yeah. So why don't we get back to your story, kind of loop back in here, the what ThoughtPod is about. If you can tell us about employees and revenue first, and then I'll ask you some more questions about the company. We work locally with customers. So I'm in Boston. We're in London, New York City, Austin, Texas, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and San Francisco. So we have the six studios. And among those six studios, we have about 105 people. And this year, we'll do $20.5 million in revenue. Well, that's a little different even there. You're saying that working locally with these people, I feel like a lot of companies similar to yours don't do that necessarily. Is that true? Yeah. A big part of what we believe and what is more fulfilling to us is working face-to-face -face with people whenever possible, getting in the same room together. It's one of the reasons why we're also really quick with what we do. And there's a big trend in the technology world to outsource things. The people who work with us see the value in working locally together face-to-face -to -face as well with the high bandwidth communication and just also feeling like we do better work. And again, it's been a little while since you gave us the intro on your company. I was thinking of you all as mainly app developers. Can you just break down the percentages of what you do and make it as easy as you can? Because I don't know how tech-centric everyone is listening, but again, just trying to keep it as simple as we can. Yeah. So it's really easy, I think, in today's environment to be like, oh, apps are apps. For a long time, especially when apps weren't really a thing that people knew about. You know, we build web applications as well. What we actually do is we build businesses. So in today's world, so many new businesses are coupled to software, whether it be a new travel startup or a food startup or any kind of startup or existing company. So we also work with much larger companies who want to do something new. It's almost guaranteed that any new business today is either going to use software off the shelf and build something based off of existing software, or they have needs specific to their business that mean that they should build something custom. And that's what we do. 
It might be we build a mobile app, but it also might be that we build an internal web-based tool or a customer-facing tool that allows you to be matched with the personal at-home chef that you want to do, if that's the business that's being built or something like that. So what we really do is we help build businesses, and we're usually involved right from as close to the very beginning as possible, where a founding team or a larger company comes to us and saying, you know, we've been working on this idea for a while, but they're still at the idea stages. And we help refine that idea by interviewing people who would actually be customers and figuring out what the first version of that product should actually be or what that business should actually be. Well, I interviewed someone recently who probably could have used you because he said his app, his name's Nick Shaw. So his interview will either be a few before this or a few afterwards. I try to stagger him based on the different type of entrepreneurs coming out, but he's in the workout space. And he said his app only took three years to get built <laughs> and that he was a little frustrated and he likes to work out. So I'm sure he could intimidate people. He seemed like a nice guy, but he vented some frustration on how long that took. It can take a long time. And, you know, so we have a particular way of working where we figure out what the essence of the first version is going to be. That's a big part of being able to get it to market quickly is figure out the smallest thing it could be. And then you get that in the market and then you continue to improve it from there. Another is that we believe in small teams of people that are really good at what they do. And so our typical team is the founder, the stakeholder at the larger company, working directly with a designer and two developers or a designer and a developer. And together, they are able to execute on the entire design and development of the application. So having people who are really experienced at what they do, working together often in the same room is a really big part of how we are able to build not only quickly, but then at the end of the day, something that customers really love. Can you give us some use case examples of people who have used y'all? And again, you can say the client's name or not or whatever, but at least give us some good ideas of how you've done things, how quickly you're able to get them up and running, et cetera. Yeah. So try to find an example that people know. We've worked with a lot of companies like Postmates and Etsy, Groupon. We worked with a company called Tile a little while ago. Are you familiar with Tile? They're the white tiles that you can attach to your keys or your luggage or put it in your wallet. And when you lose it, you can use your phone to find it. Yeah, I got it. And I noticed that uh, they didn't tell me after I purchased them that they say the battery runs out after a year. I think it's a year or two. Yeah. It still works, but it's kind of clever of them that they don't say it when you buy it. And then I'm like, oh, so you're the guy who helped make sure that I get a new tile, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we did. So Tile, they weren't on Kickstarter, which was also, we worked with Kickstarter. They're a client of ours as well. But they weren't on Kickstarter. They did their own crowdfunding campaign and they announced their idea and they had a prototype. And then I think they raised something like $2 million at the time. It was one of the largest crowdfunding things at the time. And so they came to us when they were working on the design. They already had the concept for Tile, but they knew that they needed to have the process of pairing the tile to your phone and the process of finding a tile be as smooth as possible. And so we started from that initial concept and helped rapidly build some tests. For example, for improving the speed at which you could find the tile, we invited real users into the office and we hid the tile throughout the office and we asked them to find it time them, then would say, okay, that took two minutes. Let's make some changes. And then we'll invite another round of people in and see if we can get that time down. And we did that over the span of a couple of weeks. And then we had the solution and did that. So we're pretty proud of, it was a while ago, but it's one that a lot of people use out there. And 
the onboarding experience of Tile and the experience of finding a Tile is still based on the core of what we initially did for their initial launch. And that would have been like seven years ago now. So is the solution like, because I noticed it always asked me to turn on Bluetooth. Does Bluetooth make it faster or something? Yeah, Tiles work by Bluetooth. That's how it finds. That's how they communicate with the phone. Okay, so I always have to have that on. Because normally I have it always off because I'm just trying to save battery on my phone. But okay, it only uses that. So what are some other things that I'm curious, even with the tile thing, this sounds like a fun experiment, at least out of the apps that you've done to go hide this thing, try to find it. I'm just curious, what are some things that made it go faster from your initial thought process to get that speed down? Oh, so the thing that we found was that the tiles themselves have a speaker in them and they can make a noise. And when we first started working, when Tile came, when the founders came to us, they had this idea of basically using a meter, like a hot and cold, you know, if you're close or you're far away, that kind of thing. And that was okay. People would find it based on that, but sort of searching around. But without a doubt, the fastest thing we could do was have them tap a button to make the sound go off off of the speaker and that people could almost always find it right away based on the sound. And so realizing that we prioritized the ability to make the sound. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, it's actually a nice sound like chimes or something when you hear it. I'm surprised it's not something more annoying, you know, (laughs) but maybe it'd make me want to find it faster (laughs) to turn it off. But actually, I mean, it works pretty well. Like it's, I don't lose my keys a lot, but it's just like, once you lose it once and you end up buying it afterwards, or at least I do, it's like buying security cameras after you've been broken into and you wish you had them beforehand. Yeah. So that's just one product that we help create. There's a lot of different things out there. Another one, if I can, you know, is it okay if I share another example? Yeah, another one or two. And then, yeah, that sounds great. So we worked with a company here in Boston and we still work with them today. They're a good example where they have a chain of gyms in the Boston area where they provide personal training. And they could see that their clientele for personal training, if you've done personal training before, it tends to be pretty expensive. You need to do commitment because you got to go often and it's like $99 a session. So it's really pretty expensive. And they have gyms where they have these personal trainers that are sitting there with appointments throughout the day that are pretty pricey, but then a lot of downtime during the day. And they realized that they could do something similar, like Uber black cars, you know, had the expensive appointments throughout the day. But if they could make that available to everyone else to book ad hoc, they could bring that price down quite a bit and make it more accessible to people. And so they came to us with that concept. They were going to self-fund the initial version based on being able to get the gym owners and investors to agree to explore this opportunity and build a new business in this area. So we interviewed, we have a five-phase, five-day process of a product design sprint. So the first day, we understand the problem. Second day, we brainstorm and come up with solutions to that problem. Third day, we converge on the different ideas. The fourth day, we build a prototype of the actual idea. And the fifth day, we test it with real people, that prototype. So we did that sprint with them. And what we uncovered in the sprint was that price for personal training seemed to be the overriding factor whether people would do it. And we also uncovered that people weren't afraid to train with strangers. Coupling those two ideas together, we were able to understand that If we allowed, instead of just doing one-on-one personal training, say, you know, up to three or four people can join this session with you. And for every person, the price goes down, then we can get the price down to as low as $20 a person for personal training. Okay. So when you're testing that, were you testing that in the app, just giving them different prices? I guess that's the only thing I'm a little confused by. So testing pricing tends to be hard, but what we were testing, for example, of finding whether they would train with friends or strangers. 
was to actually in the clickable prototype that we're putting together, have the options to be able to do that. And if we're watching someone we've brought in and we're asking them questions about using the app and saying, book a session, please. You know, you'd have two options in the prototype. You have book the session alone or book it with others. And if we're testing this with five, six people and they all or the majority of them choose the lower price, which is a made up price option to share it with others and everyone does that, that's a good indicator that we should probably be offering that option. In fact, they came to us with the original idea. It was going to be called Get Trained. It was primarily around one-to-one personal training. And as a result of what we learned and the product we ended up building, they actually changed the name to Split Fit. And the core concept is splitting the personal training. Are you a business owner that's tired of your team having to waste valuable time on the phone? Imagine if your support team could accurately anticipate customer issues without making them repeat themselves. Or just take a second and imagine your sales team. Just think about how many more prospects your sales team could reach if their phone system was able to create automatic call notes and even automatically dial for them. Well, Aircall is here to the rescue. Aircall is a 100% cloud-based phone system that helps thousands of sales and support teams stop wasting their time on the phone. Aircall integrates with popular CRM, help desk, e-commerce, and other business software to help your team understand and log vital customer and prospect information on every single call. With Aircall's many software integrations, customer service reps know a customer's last order and order status before they even pick up the phone. And with Aircall, sales reps can instantly add prospect numbers to a calling queue, sync call notes to your CRM, and can automatically dial through phone numbers back to back. All this automation will save your team minutes on each call and those minutes add up. So if you want to save your business time and money on the phone, then try Aircall's seven day, no risk free trial. It takes less than three minutes to set up and there's no credit card required. Simply visit aircall.io slash millionaire or check the link in your episode notes below. If you listen to the show on a regular basis, then you've heard me mention the CastBox podcast app. I've been using it for the past several years and it's by far the best podcast app out there. And I love using CastBox for really two main reasons. One, it's an easy way to interact with other podcast listeners by commenting on specific episodes. And two, they make it easy to find new podcasts that you haven't heard of. So if you're tired of using those outdated podcast apps that are missing modern day functions, Well, join me and the 28 million users worldwide that use CastBox to listen to an awesome podcast every day, like the one you're listening to this very minute. Download CastBox right now to see what you're missing. Just check the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and search for CastBox. That's C-A-S-T-B-O-X. CastBox, the better podcast player. And so I guess it helps too when you're saying you even do this locally, if you're getting people in the Boston area and they're a Boston gym, then it's easy to try to, I don't know if you actually go to the gyms or you bring the people into your actual studio to try to figure out these app things. Because again, that helps that you're not in India, for example, trying to put this together, that you kind of understand the nuances. Right. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we go to on location. Sometimes they come to our studio because we're where the customers are. We're able to move quickly and line up three to five interviews very quickly with real customers, either in the gyms or get them in. Sometimes we actually were in downtown crossing in Boston, right near Boston Common. There's been products where, you know, we built the prototype on day four. 
and we go out onto the street with that prototype and we find people and say, hey, would you take a, nap, a look at an app we're working on building and giving us your thoughts? And so how much would that cost for you to do, for example, for like this gym? Just the design sprint itself of taking that concept and ending the week with a tested prototype of it runs about ten to $15,000. And at the end of it, you have a real sense of what is actually going to be built and a prototype that is clickable on a phone. You can tap through it. You can use it. It doesn't really function, but you can tap through it. And some clients, that's all they do. And then they take that prototype and what they've learned through the sprint, and then they go raise more money. Or some clients decide not to pursue the idea based on learning and interviewing people and seeing, you know, there's something not quite right about this business or this idea. Let's refine it. Let's take our time or let's scrap it all together. So with that small upfront investment, you can really reduce the risk in bringing that new product or business to market. And then to go on to then build depends a lot on what the product actually is. So we might have a web thing, we might have a backend and a mobile app. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but generally speaking, what you'd be talking about is about $100,000 to $250,000 to go on to build the basis of a new business. So let's just say I've got a great idea, right? Because I imagine everyone thinks they can do an app or, you know, just generally think of it, right? You know, it's like, I got an idea. Let's just say I'm a regular dude who has an idea. Do you have suggestions on before I even like contact you? Because obviously like me just throwing you 10 to 15 grand to kind of figure out if it works. Obviously that's way better than if I spent a lot more money trying to figure out if this is going to work or not work. But do you have suggestions on if I wanted to get an app started, what I start doing first before I even go to you? Does that make sense? It does. So the first thing you want to do is talk to real people, ideally ones that don't know you because your friends or your family are going to be like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I don't think you met my family. OK, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. But I think everyone understands, like usually the close people, they say usually try to find a person who doesn't like you because then they're going to give you a real thoughts. But usually that person who doesn't like you is not going to want to talk to you either. So, yeah, I think the best thing you can do is find random people. And ideally, your goal at that stage is to learn. It's not even to show them or talk to them about what your solution is. Just talk to them about the problems. Find out what products they already use or what we talk about is in terms of the job to be done. They're hiring a product to get a job done. They're paying for something now to do it. It could be they're using email. Well, the email is to communicate. The job to be done is communication. What are they using to communicate? And so just talking to them about their problems, because your goal is to understand what pain they have that you might solve. And if you go out too early saying like, here's what I am working on, you're only going to get feedback directly related to what they think about your idea. And in, for the first conversation, you want to learn about things in general and the pain to make sure that the pain you're solving is really real without biasing them towards your solution or away from your solution you know, talk to three to five people. We often post to Craigslist about this. So when we're trying to find people for testing or interviews, you could just go on Craigslist, the gigs section of Craigslist and say, we're looking for people who have a PhD and are going through a career transition. We were really skeptical that we'd be able to find people with a PhD in the gig section of Craigslist. But we found a really great group of three to five people who have PhDs who are going through a career transition. And we pay them $25 Starbucks gift card or $20 Starbucks gift card to just talk to them. We develop a series of questions. So that's all super lightweight stuff that you can do to learn about 
the pain and validate the ideas that you have without ever, first of all, not showing them the solution. So then once you talk to those people, a picture is worth a thousand words. You may not be the greatest artist in the world. That's totally okay. You can just sketch out some things on paper about what you're thinking. It doesn't need to be perfect. And there are a couple of tools that are either free or very low cost. Two of them, they're balsamic and Envision. They're sketching tools that allow you to sketch. So even if you're not the greatest artist, you can sketch out a UI on a user interface on your computer. And then you take that and you bring that to another group of three to five people. And you say, you don't even walk them through it. Ideally, you've fleshed it out enough to say, like, just show it to them and get their honest feedback without biasing them in any way about it. And those are really lightweight things that you can do to learn. If someone comes to us with that, I mean, our eyes light up because it means that you've done the initial groundwork to really make sure that you're solving the pain for your users in a way that we're going to be able to run with. Yeah. And I think even if you want to make it simpler, maybe for some people, I remember even when I was trying to make my first website 10, 15 years ago, or I guess it seems about that long. When I was doing my first real estate company is I just even went into PowerPoint and then that way you can easily do squares or lines and then put next slide on what it would look like for each random page or whatever. So just pick something simple that you know and something that's easily movable because if you even use like paint, well, once you put that line down, you're screwed. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's way harder to move versus like something in PowerPoint or your other suggestions. That's actually a great suggestion. I overlooked it, but PowerPoint is a great prototyping tool, particularly because you can say like, when I click on this, go to this slide. And so you can do really sort of rudimentary prototypes by mocking up multiple screens in, in PowerPoint and you can have the transitions between them. Thank you, Chad. I think that's the first time I've been complimented on the podcast <laughs> from a guest. So thank you. Your guests are usually much meaner than I am. Yes, they are. So, I mean, this sounds interesting. The only thing I guess I would have been confused on was the PhDs, why you actually got PhDs to look at a particular app. Was it something for them? It was. We were working with a company that builds an app that allows people to go on. Educational institutions would embed it in their website. And so you could go on and say, I have these skills or these pre-existing degrees. I'm interested in these things. And then it would show you what degree you should get at that school or what classes you should take. Okay. So again, it's finding that user base who's going to use that actual app. That's why you got the PhDs for that. Yeah. So we're talking to real people who would actually be users of that. And in that particular case, it was, you know, looking for certain degree requirements and experience. Right. So again, if anyone's thinking of app, again, just think who's going to be your target audience. That's what you want to put on Craigslist to hopefully kind of find these people. And amazing that you're even able to get them in there for 25 bucks, especially the, some PhDs, right? Yeah. I guess that's why you want to make sure that they're in between jobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people too overlook, they're scared to even do that, which I don't know why you would be, but you know, even going to random people in downtown Boston, right? I think it's pretty simple to do that. Although those might not be your target base, at least it gets you kind of set up. But what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you get the PhDs? Like some people just want to help think about it. They're teachers anyways. So even the $25 gift card, I'm sure they're super thankful for it. They almost wouldn't probably even do it for free, but at least you give them a little something. And again, it's good ideas to practical ideas before you want to spend a lot of money making a company or making a business that's going to be using an app. Yeah. The street ones are good when you have things that you can identify. The most recent case of that, we were building an app for parents to help parents talk to their kids. And so what we were able to do is go out on the street and, you know, if, if there was a parent who had kids, it was easy to identify, hey, this is someone who could be a user. And we were able to ask them. 
But yes, people get hung up on this. I think part of it is you're scared because you think what you've done isn't good enough yet. And you just got to get over that and you got to get through that fear. The other is you don't want to be told your idea is not good. And this is mostly a subconscious fear that holds people back. But what you'll find when you start to talk to people is that you'll be very thankful when you talk to people because either the results are going to be really positive and you're going to feel really great or the initial negative feedback might get you down a little bit. But in retrospect, you're going to be super thankful that you didn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and months or years of your working on something that not that it's an entirely bad idea, but maybe just needed to be tweaked 25% based on what you learn in order to be that million dollar idea. Yeah, I was going to say, we've been talking about money, especially that you spend on it, but even worse is the time, right? Because all of us only have so much time. So you're spending all that on there. If you can't get your feelings a little bit hurt in the beginning, like I said, it's going to be much better than getting a big spanking at the end. So we haven't really touched on your story too much, but I've been kind of fascinated. Just do you mind if we talk about the app space a little bit more and what we could learn about that? I don't mind. I guess like the future of apps, I feel like maybe less and less people download apps right in the beginning. Well, I don't even know what the beginning is, but can you take us about the history and what the future is of app downloads and kind of what you plan on doing with your company with it? Yeah. So ThoughtBot has been around for 16 years. And when we say apps, a lot of people hear mobile apps because that's what everyone has in their pocket now. But we have been around even before the iPhone existed. So when we say apps, what we mean is it's short for applications. And so we do web programs, like a lot of people use Facebook on your phone, but there's a Facebook website that where you can actually do functionality and that kind of thing. That's the kind of things we build for the web as well. You might use Groupon through your mobile app, but you might go to Groupon.com and use the program there. That's a web app and we build those as well. And so having been through the transition from web to mobile, what you also see, and through many other transitions in the 16 years we've been around, is the previous things don't go away. You know, we use as users of computers and of phones and tablets, we still use websites. We still use web applications quite a bit. And mobile apps are huge and they're important, but they're on top of the previous generation, particularly because a mobile app almost always talks to a server in the back end. And that essentially is the same technology and things that we're using for a web-only app. So from a technical perspective and also from an ecosystem perspective, one builds on top of the other. So what we see nowadays in terms of the future is clearly things like machine learning and artificial intelligence are becoming and are really important. Companies like Apple and Google and Amazon are really investing very heavily in that. What's going to happen when we do that today and in the future when we're using those technologies? We're using them on top of the ecosystems that already exist today. So web and mobile aren't going to go away. What's going to happen is artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to make those existing products do different things and better, but on top of what already exists today. So when you build an artificial intelligence a product, you're still probably going to deploy that on mobile and it's still probably going to talk to a server somewhere. From our business perspective, everything builds upon what our experience has always been. And from a user perspective, it's changing, but it's more of an evolution. It can feel like huge shifts, but it really is an evolution. 
Yeah, I guess I understand what you're saying. Thank you for clarifying what you're talking about when you say apps, because well, at least I just think mobile apps for a second. But then I do realize there's databases online where you can see that it was actual application that puts all this stuff together versus if I just go to my website where it's much more simple. So how about like mobile app downloads? I guess that's what I want to clarify for the consumers. Is there less downloads with that? Because to me, it's like you're saying it's connecting to a server anyways, the app is. So if I just use Chrome on my actual phone, it's almost like I don't even need an app for that thing that I used to need an app for because it just comes out so nicely, right? Yes. And that's actually something that we've always believed. Most new businesses should not be building a mobile app for their first version. Now, that doesn't mean that no one should, but most new businesses are better off building focus on a mobile web application that works really well on mobile in Chrome or in mobile Safari because people don't need to install an app. Maybe they don't want to, or at the very least, they don't need to. That's going to get that experience to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And you're going to be able to tell whether you've got a business there and whether you can be successful. And then once you see, yes, we've got X thousand paying customers and 15% or 30% of them are on mobile devices, okay, it makes financial sense to now bring a fully native mobile experience to those users. That is the flow that we recommend for most businesses. Yeah, it makes sense because, I mean, I could think about the headaches of making actual app. Like I've got an Android phone. So what happens when I have older versions of Androids and there's other countries and then the app doesn't work on this version and works on the differently on another version versus if you just make sure your website is mobile responsive and you're killing that, that's basically, like I said, an app within your phone that you're getting probably even better information, right? If they're on the mobile phone where they're actually clicking in the app, you can eventually tell me that, especially if I'm spending enough money to develop that. But if I'm using Google Analytics or something else, if I just have a really good mobile responsive app, I can get a better feel of tweaking everything or how everything's working. Yeah. And you can iterate much more quickly because at least on iPhone, you need to submit to Apple and get your app reviewed every time you want to make any change. And so when you're developing only for the web, you can move much more quickly early on. And that's why it's important for a lot of businesses when they're just starting out, focus on the web because you can iterate more quickly on your idea. And not only that, they can take you down for any reason and it could not be your fault and then they don't respond to you. Or I mean, I guess it could be your fault, but you could get a response or no response. And then that obviously would be frustrating. Yep. Has anything like that happened with any of your clients? We've never had a client be taken offline. We have had clients where their app is rejected during review. And it's usually something not obvious, but straightforward to resolve once Apple points it out. But there are lots of rules around what apps can and can't do. And so we're often talking to people early on about how to stick, you know, they might not realize that something's either not possible technically or that it might be a violation of one of the rules. And we're working to steer them clear of that really early on so that they're not being pulled later on. Well, I guess in our limited time left, would you rather maybe we can do a different interview, maybe going kind of over the story of everything of how you built your business to where it is today and whatnot, because usually it takes a little bit longer. Maybe we can use the rest of this time just to talk about anything technology-wise or app-wise that could help people in their businesses. Because again, I'm finding it very interesting because we haven't had anyone on like you quite yet as far as, you know, again, people, when they're thinking mobile apps, they always want one. And just anything to look out for and any other suggestions you might have for anyone who's thinking about technology in their business. Well, just to round out the thought around you know, mobile versus web is that if you're really committed to having a world-class experience on iOS and Android, you're essentially committing to building two completely separate 
applications, you're doubling the work you have to do. If you're thinking about building a company around that usually means hiring two completely separate teams of people to be able to do those things. The costs, if you're a world-class application, you might be able to afford that, but the costs are essentially double. And so that's another thing that most businesses need to grow to. So you really do need to be careful when you're first getting started to set your sights at the right level for what you're going to do. And many people that we talk to come to us and they, you know, they want to be Facebook or they want to be Uber and they want to be the Uber of whatever. I've never heard that expression. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but look how much money Uber has raised and lost. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're still losing money, right? You know, people often have unrealistic expectations about how expensive it actually is to build a business, let alone a product, a digital app for the web or mobile makes it grow even more. So you're literally talking, you know, these companies have sent millions and millions of dollars to designers and developers over the course of years, building and refining their app, let alone running their business. And so you really do need to set your expectations right. And that's why we'll almost always recommend people getting started to do the first version and explore based on the simpler, smaller targets. Well, good thing you're not only in the mobile app business or else you'd be talking yourself out of business daily, huh? I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you kept clarifying that, you know, we're not just mobile apps. We do these other applications. So, I mean, are you doing less and less mobile apps now or what's been over the last 16 or 17 years of your business as far as percentage of revenue or what's going on with the technology space? I wouldn't say we're doing less mobile applications, but what we are doing is a wider variety of things. So, it might be that new product that we do in the first version, and we really are focused on web, but then sometime later, we then do the mobile versions of it. Or in some things we say, actually, this makes total sense. The user interviews have shown we really do need a mobile app on people's phones. So we do that first and then expand there later on, but we're not trying to do everything all at once. And now we have things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and a lot of people that we're doing it in products as well. And a lot of people now come to us with unrealistic expectations about this groundbreaking product or business that they're going to do using artificial intelligence. Not only is the technology there, not there yet for executing on a lot of these ideas, but the work that you need to do in order to get an artificial intelligence model that actually works, you need to do everything manually first, essentially, is the way I can put it. So if you have an idea for something that you can essentially automate with artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence in today's world doesn't just magically exist. You need to train it with something. And so you almost always have to train it with manual stuff that you've done in your business. So you often need to build your whole business and do it manually first to build the data set that, that you're then going to use to train the artificial intelligence model. Artificial intelligence models and machine learning models, the way that they work is off of statistical probability. So when they answer a question for you, they say, I'm 75% certain of this answer. If you have artificial intelligence solution without ever having done a manual process, you won't actually know whether it's better or not than just doing it manually. Doing it manually is important to set a baseline, then using artificial intelligence to actually improve. And you can know, oh, when we're hitting 90% on this, this is better than doing it by hand or doing it with a human. Because it's actually quite easy to put together a machine learning model that is worse than someone doing it. Can you give us some examples of that? I think I'm understanding what you're saying, but I feel like maybe if we had an example of what you're saying of like, it actually might be more beneficial to not have AI or machine learning do it. Can you just talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah. So for example, if someone came to us and said, I'm a successful salesperson, I have an idea for building a new CRM that uses artificial intelligence to predict approach or likelihood to close or those kinds of things. And I want to build that product. If we were to just, first of all, what we would need to do to build that product is start building a CRM that you might know of. And then we would say, okay, we're going to put artificial intelligence on it. Well, the artificial intelligence doesn't actually exist for predicting close rate without learning from data about close rates and the attributes of deals that would lead to a certain close rate. And how are you going to get that data? You need to have a CRM that doesn't have artificial intelligence or a data set from an existing CRM that you can use to train the data. So if you're not able to get that data set around that particular product, in this case, like, you know, millions and millions of previous sales that have flowed through some CRM that can be used to train an artificial intelligence model about success rates, then the first thing to do is build a great CRM that doesn't use artificial intelligence that people will actually use to give you the data that you can then use to augment it with artificial intelligence. There's really no other way around it. You either need that big data set that you can feed to an artificial intelligence model, or you need to create your own. Does that make sense? But Chad, we don't have enough CRMs. <laughs> the world can use another CRM. It'll be fine. I said I'm the king of using CRMs. I've tried them all because it's funny. It's just like after they all promise me they're going to do this thing and then none of them do. You know, it's only as useful as you use it. I actually made my own CRM with my old business because I got tired. I made my custom one using it, Microsoft Access and I have my own database and then I'd send it to developers to do these things because none of them would fit. And again, I think some people want the concept and idea of a CRM is fantastic. I've tried them all. I've literally almost tried all of them. Like every big one you talk about, I've tried or even smaller ones. Trust me. <laughs> I wanted to make it easier, but then again, sorry, you're going to get me on the CRM rant about that. But it's absolutely right. Like that's just the example that I use because I tried to find something that would be relatable and why you need the data to do artificial intelligence with it. But just this concept of like someone has a great idea for a CRM. Well, everyone has a great idea for a CRM because all CRMs are terrible. So say you built your own CRM. Okay. Say you want to make that into a product and a business. There's so much you need to do to make sure that you would actually have customers for that business because there are so many CRMs. What's going to make yours special? What's going to make your people use yours in a reliable, repeatable way and not just have them be like, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to build my own. And that's why you can go to capterra.com forward slash millionaire, one of our sponsors, to check out all the CRMs they have. I'm sure they have probably thousands upon thousands that you can look at. But I'm glad that you talked about this machine learning first, that you need this data set in there. Because when people start thinking about technology too, like you're saying, I guess you need that data to get the artificial intelligence for that to understand. But when people start hearing these key words, they're like, oh, that's the magic key to making everything work, you know, technology and doing this. But it's like, no, you have to do the work with the data first in order to get that. And you need so many data sets or, you know, right, to make sure that it makes sense of what it's going to do. So just saying, hey, we're going to slap AI on this or whatever. I think maybe you've helped me understand that you need that information first before you can even do anything, right? Yep. You either need to get it from somewhere or you need to build it yourself. Well, that's interesting. Well, so I guess in our closing moments here, if you don't mind, like I said, we can do another episode or actually trying to do specific Patreon episodes. So maybe we can get your backstory on how you got all into this and go over that a little bit. But I just found it fascinating. Just even, I didn't even know we'd go down this route as far as, you know, talking about apps and everything either. <laughs> I didn't know either. I was prepared to give my whole life story. 
<laughs> well, like I said, we can follow up and do that again. But is there anything else with this technology that maybe you have to give a speech to tech people, but I don't think my audience is nearly as tech based, but anything else that people come to you with that you're like, hey, you know, you need to do this first. Or again, I think we've all learned a lot as far as if we want to do an app. I think you kind of talked us out of it a little bit. <laughs> well, before you get completely talked out of it, you can get in touch with me and I'll help you figure out. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is like, I, I'm a designer and developer. I am not a business person. I am now because I run the company, but I didn't approach this and what I do from a business perspective. What I've learned comes from working with this point, almost a thousand different companies across Thoughtbot over 16 years, building lots and lots of products and failing because what is it? 50% of all businesses fail or something like that. So a tremendous amount of businesses don't succeed. What I see is one I already talked about not talking to real users, holding back from talking to real potential customers. And again, not going to them with your solution, but just learning from them and hearing what their pains are. That's the biggest mistake people make early on. The next one that people tend to mistake is once you start working on something, saying, oh, we can't launch until we have this, and we can't launch until we have that, and there's no way we could launch without these features, and really, you end up expanding the scope of what you're doing and you go for six months, a year, three years without ever launching anything. And that whole time you're wasting time where you could be doing something else if you're going to fail, you're wasting money. But probably, in my opinion, most egregiously, you are losing the opportunity to actually put something in the hands of real people so that you can make it better. And because since you're most likely going to fail, you want to do that as soon as possible so you have a chance to course correct. And if you go a year or two or six months without ever launching something and holding back all of those individual features and never launching until you have all of them in place, you'll never learn whether those are the right things in the first place. So putting your product in the hands of people without those features and then hearing from them that they actually want them, that's way more valuable than waiting until you have them in the first place. And so a lot of people fail before they even launch anything. So to avoid that, launch quickly. Did you know that your support through Patreon helps us put together this little podcast for you each and every week? For only a few bucks a month, you help us pay for guest research, awesome conversations like the one you're listening to right now, and last but not least, the audio production of each individual episode. Well, if you want to help us keep bringing you these episodes, then we'd love your support via Patreon. Plus, as a bonus for supporting us on Patreon, you'll receive a whole bunch of cool stuff like secret podcast episodes that are only available to Patreon members. You'll get a direct Zoom call with me where we can talk about your business and a personal shout out of your name on a future episode and plus so much more. So if you want to join the inner circle of our podcast, then please help support us on Patreon. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon or check the link in your episode description below. Every week, you listen to amazing entrepreneurs right here on this awesome podcast. But rarely do you get to talk with these incredible people one-on-one -on -one about your specific business challenges. Well, now you can. On episode 104, I spoke with Eric Gilbert Williams about his journey from rock bottom to building and selling a multi-million dollar business. Well, now Eric is taking his business experience and coaching entrepreneurs like you so you can increase your bottom line. For a limited time, you can book a complimentary one-on-one -on -one phone session with Eric to find solutions for your business. No strings attached. 
Simply visit driveupprofits.com and reserve your spot today. That's driveupprofits.com. And again, if you'd like to learn more about Eric's story and how he's able to build his company up to 60 people and become the fastest growing company in his city, then go check out episode 104. And how about suggestions if they've heard what you said, they're like, hey, maybe I should just go ahead and focus on my mobile development on my website. Maybe I'm getting hundreds of customers or thousands of customers a day. What are your suggestions on that before they even approach you? So maybe they're, again, you said you love when people have concepts or something drawn out before they even come to you. But let's just say I want to even go a step before that and I want to kind of optimize and try to figure that out. What are your suggestions on that? Any thoughts? So you're saying if you have an existing business with real customers and you want to do something more with them? Right, exactly. And you have a website, maybe it's not super mobile friendly yet or whatever. You know, I guess a lot of different types of companies come to you, but I don't know if there's a use case or suggestions that you have before, maybe just tips that people could use now based on this interview to kind of make that a little bit better before even thinking about an app or even not even doing one. Yeah, you mentioned analytics before. So Google Analytics is a free thing. It's by Google. You can put it on your site in your web application and it will tell you what users are doing. It will also tell you where they're doing it. So if they're doing it on iOS, if they're doing it on their phone versus on their computer that we always look at and say, you know, what percentage of people are using your business, but from their phone. And if those are really high numbers, that could be a good indicator that you should be doing things to serve them better. If they're really low, that can mean two things. That can mean, boy, your mobile experience is terrible and they're not using it because they have to go to their computer to get the full value of their product. Or it can mean, yeah, people aren't on mobile for this, so don't bother investing in it further. But having those analytics there, Google Analytics is a free product. There's a couple of paid products we recommend. Amplitude is one to look at. You just put that on your web app and you can get that information about not only whether you should do a mobile thing, but also just what people are actually doing in your web app. So if you're not collecting that data, that's something to start doing. And then we take that information or you can take that information and help you validate what direction you should head in. Is there particular types of businesses that it makes more sense? For instance, even if you went to my website, I guess, even on your phone or if you have in your browser, I know you can make it obviously make it look like mobile. I'm just trying to get suggestions on anyone who have even not highly visited web pages. Again, having the analytics stuff, I've got it on there, but honestly, I don't look at it because I know I don't get that many people visiting every day. But do you have suggestions on those type of people even before we're tracking everything, but is there anything else where maybe we can learn more about this or what we could do on our websites to try to hopefully increase traffic or optimization? Well, I do, but I'm not sure it's the answer that you're going to expect. Well, then we're ready. And that is to do what exactly what you're doing with this podcast. So building reputation, building content. There's a big trend in marketing around personal and just general reputation building and permission marketing. So building an audience of people who care about what you say and you know are fans of you, finding that audience is really important to then when you do build an app or you are thinking of doing something new, you have an audience that you can launch that to. And that turns the prospect of doing something new and hearing crickets to doing something new and having 100, 300, 10,000 people paying attention to what you're doing. That's what we've done at ThoughtBot. We have a very popular blog for designers and developers. It's read by over 2 million. It gets 2 million readers a year. 
We have podcasts of our own. I host a podcast called Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots. You can get it at giantrobots.fm and your podcast player. We also have two other podcasts, one for designers, one for developers. So we build up our reputation. We contribute a tremendous amount of open source. So over 75% of all applications built in one of the web frameworks that we use called Ruby on Rails include at least one of our open source packages in them. So designers and developers who are in the circles that we operate in, that helps us with hiring and the new things that we do. Also realizing that we've released a few books. They're actually free now. We've made them free after a few years, but when we launched them, we launched a book. We sold it for $49 targeted at learning a new technology that was very hot at the time. We sold, I don't know how many thousands who we sold, but I know we broke the $200,000 mark with that book, self-published. So building that audience and that reputation, whether you're going to do an app or you're going to do anything new, working in advance to build your audience up of like-minded people who want to hear what you have to say is really critical to turning your what you're doing into a success. I don't know if that was what you were expecting, but it's what I really believe. No, can I put you on the spot then? Yeah. Do you have suggestions on how if I put out information? I've been doing the podcast for a little over by the time it launches, it'd be around two years or so. And putting out that information as free as you can and then trying to grow. I've been trying to add additional revenue streams so I can keep doing this and trying to get Patreon members to help support it. And that's been kind of difficult in order to increase those amounts. And just again, so I can even cover costs because that's kind of the point that I'm at. Any suggestions on doing that? It's tough. I don't know how many listeners you have, but like, you know, even podcasts that have hundreds of thousands of listeners, I think, struggle to get critical mass of member only supported stuff that is enough to support them. Almost everyone I know does, you know, with Patreon at a reasonable level of listener size is augmenting that with ads as well, if we're talking about exclusively podcasts. So if in that world, this is just an idea, but in that world, I would look to do something else that might be, okay, I'm going to do this ebook on a topic that I know my audience cares about, and I'm going to sell it for $19. That makes sense. I'm glad that you kind of all brought this up because again, it's like you putting out that information on your website or having these podcasts. It's like, I think what I've learned time and time again, it just takes time and not having unrealistic expectations. I do, I guess as you say, augment the through sponsorships and whatnot, but it's again, trying to look at different ways to do I have exclusive only Patreon episodes, which I'm planning on doing now because so those people get more behind it and want to help keep supporting it. Because again, I think having a good listener base and everything, you see the download counts, but then you wonder, it's like, are those people really out there? Because it seems like, you know, it's kind of going out into nowhere sometimes. Yeah. I mean, especially since I run, you know, I listen to a tremendous amount of podcasts. That's what I listen to when I run. So I use Overcast podcast player. And you're subscribed to ours, right? So I'll be honest, I'm not subscribed. We like honesty. But I have it in the app. And so I can get the new episodes, but I don't get them automatically. So yeah, I know you'll take care of that after we get done with this episode, right? Yes. doesn't say how many hours of podcasts I listen to a week, but it does say that just alone, they have a feature in Overcast that removes the silence in between things. It's called smart speed. So if we're talking and then we pause, it'll remove that silence. And that alone has saved me 296 hours of listening time. So even on your rest time, when we talk about you're supposed to relax, you got to take it to another level, huh? 
<laughs> I know, yeah. I can't do the skip silences because I know that it has in some other podcast players. I'm like, I'm not even going to go there. I think the max speed I can go is like, it depends on who's talking, right? There's some podcasts where I'm like, dude, I'm going to have to get a 1.5. Other ones, I'm like at one. Usually it's 1.2 or something like that, depending on the person. But I mean, other times I just go back down to one because I'm like, dude, this is my relax. I got to relax for a little bit. This is the one time I got to mentally shut down my brain or else I'm going to go crazy. Yeah. So I listen to, you know, dozens of hours a week in podcasts, just looking at my player about, I would say a third of them have membership or Patreon. And I think a lot of people who listen to podcasts, maybe, you know, how much bandwidth do people have if they are doing one or two? Are they really going to do more than that? I'm skeptical. Right. Well, I think it's having those good, like if I put out this many episodes, it's just, you know, making as much of your information free, which I've tried to do in over the last couple of years. Right. And keep ads obviously help or else I wouldn't even be able to do this anymore. But then it's taken to a level where I'm like, okay, now I've got to actually start paying myself at some point. And that's where I'm at as far as when I'm asking for Patreon. It's like, you know, I'm trying to look out the motivation as far as, you know, hopefully people donate because they want to keep hearing good episodes. Because when I listen to other podcasts and stuff, personally, I just always get tired of other big podcasts where they're just talking to billionaires. And it's like, dude, how do you get to that point? Or when I listen to different podcasts where the host wouldn't shut the hell up and let the guests actually talk, you know, and they want to tell the same story every time. You know, I think what we try to do is something a little bit that's kind of in between trying to fix that niche. And I've been listening to podcasts for over 10 plus years. So that's part of the reason I did it. I just got frustrated enough that I couldn't find something that I liked. And I think that's what a lot of people do in business, right? But now I'm at that point. It's like, okay, just experimenting, trying different things to increase revenue. Because imagine, like I said, we can jump into another episode with you. It's not always easy. Rarely get those stories where every day it just keeps going up and up and up because it hasn't been that way yet. But I'm going to just keep kind of believing it's like if I keep putting good information out, that hopefully good things will happen. And then not just being blindfolded to being like Uber where I have to keep raising, you know, I can just keep raising money. But eventually you got to actually make money doing it or else you don't have a business. Yeah. And I'm not a good quitter. I'm a good learner. So I learn from failure, but I've quit very few things in my life. And so I'm not sure I'm like, I don't know when to quit. I've done lots of different things where it's clearly not working in retrospect, but, and maybe did them for a lot longer than someone else would have. But along the way, you're just trying so many different things and you're really persistent and you try lots of different things. And eventually it either pays off and you hit upon the thing or something else comes along, which is more successful. And then you can justify sort of like, well, I'm not quitting this one thing. I'm focusing more on this other thing that's more successful. That's how it's always worked for me. So I'm a big fan of persistence and keep on trying as long as you're learning along the way. Well, yes, stay tuned, everyone who's listening, and we'll find out with the podcast what happens. And I think with another episode, like I said, with you, we'll, we can actually dive into your story. But I think, you know, you coming on here talking about tech and kind of understanding that. And I think it's been very helpful, at least for me. And I think a lot of people are listening. So, I mean, is there anything else that you'd want to leave the people who are listening with as far as I guess you can in the tech space or information space or even any tips for entrepreneurs before we get off? Well, when it comes to creating something that people love. One of the big lessons that I learned pretty early on, thankfully, with ThoughtBot is that if you try to be everything to everybody, you're nothing to no one. We didn't become successful until we started to be intentional about the way that we worked, what we believed, and were willing to say no to the things that didn't match that. It wasn't until we started doing that, until we started to work like we had nothing to lose, that we started to be successful. And that's my biggest lesson that I learned. And when I come back on, I can tell the story of how we learned that the hard way. 
But standing for things, uh, being willing to say no time and time again for me and being principled is the thing that's led to success. Well, we'd look forward to, like I said, maybe if you're okay with that, we'll do on as a Patreon episode and maybe we can have your story be on there and people want to hear it. They could help support us on the podcast by kind of having, again, some more exclusive interviews because some people want more than one episode a week. And it's me trying to balance that and making sure that, you know, we meet those needs by also it's quality and quantity. Like at first I came out with a lot per week, but then I wanted a more quality, longer interview. So it's like figuring out which is which, but if you're okay with that, we can do the follow-up episode as a Patreon episode. I love to. Yeah. Anyone who becomes a Patreon member will get access to that so that'd be great and again chad thank you for coming on yeah yeah if anyone wants to say thank you for doing this episode that's going to come out on the normal feed what's the best way for them to reach you and say thank you for you doing this you could email me at chad at thoughtbot.com that's t-h-o-u-g-h-t-b-o-t.com you can check us out on the web at thoughtbot.com and uh, you can find me on twitter too at c all right well thank you chad thank you So I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're an active Patreon member, you were emailed a special unique URL when you signed up to become a Patreon. And with that URL, you get access to all of these exclusive Patreon episodes, including the second part of this interview, which is available right now. I basically talked with Chad on actually how he grew ThoughtBot into a thriving business today, instead of all the you know cool tactical stuff we just talked about in this interview. So if you want access to it and other exclusive interviews, and you're not a Patreon member, then go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.